Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we work to dissect and analyze the amazing, the suspenders, the epic, the cool, the awe-inspiring power of storytelling and learn how we can harness that power in our everyday lives. I'm Gorv. And I'm Kevin. Kev, you know, we are getting closer and closer to the end of the third season. We still have a few months to go, but it's been such a fun and exciting season. You know, the goal of this season was innovation. You know, that was the main internal goal we had was find ways to innovate the ways we do our podcast episodes, the ways we present uh, audience aspects of episodes, the ways we connect with people. And, you know, one of the big things we did this season was for our 50th episode, we tried a video podcast where it's not just audio but also video and we put it up on youtube and you can listen to it and watch it on spotify and listen to it everywhere else but kev what did you think about approaching the video side of the podcasting space oh it was exciting slightly intimidating but ultimately a lot of fun um it was the first video literally that i've ever edited but yeah, it was really cool to try this new format um, and also in that process, understand the difference between the video and audio mediums. Um, so yeah, I'm glad we're able to pull that episode together. Yeah, and I think the interesting part about this episode was one, not only did we decide to do video very last minute, we kind of toyed with it, but decided very last minute. Not only that, but we also had to figure out how to set up my living room to do a video podcast with one person not in the room. It was it was a mess. Like uh, we had to set up lighting, figure out how to balance microphones on textbooks. <laughs> but we had these huge GMAT uh, textbooks set up to set up microphones on it. Like, yes, I'm so glad I spent all that money on GMAT textbooks just to be a nightstand. But anyways, we had to figure out all the technical elements and it was a hot mess. I, I mean, I'm looking at my living room right now and thinking, damn. We turned that into a podcast studio in like 20 minutes. But you know, it's interesting. The medium's interesting. When we started our podcast, video podcasts were just becoming a thing. Uh, mostly you could put up the audio on all the podcasting platforms and then have a video version on YouTube. And you know, a lot of the big podcasters were doing it because the idea was it gives people more choice. And I think a huge reason this came up was because it gave you ability to create TikToks out of your podcast. And TikTok was a huge way people were interacting. Um, but I think it's a di- very different experience. And I think in the beginning, we talked about doing audio first because I enjoyed audio first podcasts more. I felt like the guests were a little bit more comfortable. I felt like I was a little bit more comfortable. And I believe podcasting is so powerful because there's no video, because you're just putting these two headphones in your ears. You feel like you're in the room. With video, there's always that divide with the screen where you you know you're not there. And it also requires more attention because you have to like, kind of watch and yeah, sure, there's things that you can see inflection, you can see body language, and it's great for TikTok, great for YouTube. But I feel like when you're listening to a podcast, you feel like you're in the room. It's much more intimate. Like even if you can't see them, but you can kind of imagine them. And it's like this difference between like movies, TVs, and books, right? This idea that it allows your imagination to fill in the gaps a little bit more. And by listening to them, it feels like you're in the room a little bit more. So that's one of the many reasons we went with audio first but i think the important thing here even if you have both is understanding the powers of both to understand what an audio only unlocks for the listener 
they focus a little bit more on the voice. It feels a little bit more intimate. You feel like you're there. But also understand what a video uh, provides a listener. It allows you to do short clips. It allows you to see inflections. It allows you to see body language. I think it's so important in any type of storytelling to understand the ways your audience is going to consume it. Understand the pros and cons of both. Not just say, oh, video has both audio and video. It's better. More is not always better. And speaking of trying out different mediums of storytelling, this week we are talking to Stephen Marsh. He is a Canadian author and novelist. And what's special about Stephen is that he has been trying to write novels with AI since as early as 2017. And most recently, he has leveraged、uh, language AI to write. A new novel called *Death of an Author*, and you know, Grover and I—we both read it or listened to it, and I, I'm a little disturbed by the fact that I liked it. But it's going to be a great conversation where we talk to Stephen to pull behind the curtains of how this story was written with AI and to debunk a lot of the myths behind language AI, the AI boom in the recent years, and what this means for storytelling. Yeah, let's get into it. Can you use, tell us your full first and last name for us? Stephen Marsh is my full name. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Um, my story. Well, I'm a writer. I've lived this sort of peripatetic life of a 21st century writer. So I was a Shakespeare professor who used to write avant-garde novels, and then I moved to Toronto because my wife got a job here, and I became a freelance journalist. And started working, you know, all kinds of stories. I had a column、uh, about pop culture at Esquire for eight years, and now I just sort of do stories that interest me. I published about that's a lot of books now, like six, seven, eight books.、Uh, I, I have three books coming out this year. They're all incredibly strange, and、um, I've been working on AI. Specifically, like creative AI、uh, and linguistic AI, since about 2017,、um, which is when I published my first short story on、uh, that was algorithmically generated for Wired,、um, and then I published Death of an Author, which came out in May with Pushkin, the audio company, and that was 95% AI generated. We love your story, and we're so excited to dig into it. I think before we kind of dive in. Can you take a second to just kind of define what is AI in your in your vision of it, and how is it currently affecting storytelling? Well, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of AI. I mean, that, one of the things that's not really like people think AI right now is basically ChatGPT, and now it is true. Like the the most interesting form of AI right now is the generative AI that's coming out of the transformer models,、um, but certainly not the only kind of AI. There's GANs. There's a lot of different kinds of AI that also have really interesting possibilities linguistically and generatively, but are, are a little less well known. I mean, to me, like a lot of things get called AI that are basically like algorithmic, that are basically、mm-hmm. like just automated. Right and th- like AI to me is involves an autonomous system that is inherently unfathomable. Like that's that to me is where you get to the point where AI gets interesting, and, and that's you know that's only really a subset of the creative work that's being done with algorithms. But it is the most exciting part of algorithmic creativity for sure. 
But of course, let's get into the creative process of Death of an Author. So you said that you know this novel is ninety five percent AI generated. What does that mean? You know, what parts of the novel are determined by you, and what's generated by AI? The reason I, w- I want to say ninety five percent AI generated is that I allowed myself to change certain. Like if if it was like Gus went into the room, and to make it make sense, I had to have it, he went into the room. I just changed that just for the sake of my own convenience, really. So I mean. Mm-hmm. Like it's all AI generated. It's just I altered, you know, like about five percent of it just to make the flow very easy. Um, but I mean, what I would do is I would go into ChatGPT. I would make very specific requests. I've never seen an artificial intelligence that can write a good plot. I've been working with it since 2017. I just don't see it anywhere. Uh, I mean, not that it might come sometime, but it's not here yet. Um, and so the plot is my ideas, like from my brain. And then I would have the machine generate, like, you know, write a paragraph of three sentences in a mixture of simple and compound complex sentences saying, containing the following information, colon, and then you just list what the plot action is of that section. It would create it. I would then take that, move it into a program called PseudoWrite, which is a great little stochastic writing instrument then i would select text there and they have like shorten lengthen and they have a customized button that allows you to like make it sound like anyone you want ernest hemingway like raymond carver whoever you like you can turn it into that style so i would do that and then i also wanted some good lines in it so i use cohere which is a toronto large language model company and that was trained on prompts like I would like write a metaphor of this and then I would train it on various examples of the metaphor and then it would conjure them, generate them. And then I would generate 20 or 30 or something and then pick one. It's kind of like a scribe in a way where you kind of articulate what you're looking for and it puts it all together. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's sort of hard to describe because in partly sometimes it does what you say, but it's also like getting an alien to write a story. There are parts where I'm in control. And I'm using this machine as something that I control to generate something that I want. But to do that, you have to have a combination. You have to be incredibly specific about what you want to get anything good, right? I mean, obviously, you can use this stuff to generate crap. We're talking about trying to write something excellent here. Um, The other thing is sometimes the machine would be very surprising and produce beautiful things on its own. I mean, that's that's where the future of this is going, is into that unique particular beauty. So I'm partly in control, but I'm also partly not in control, which is not super unlike the regular process of creativity, where surprises emanate and you have to grasp them. You have to see what they are, right? And you have to understand what they are. Um, certainly, it requires no less understanding of how to write than just actually writing. I'll tell you that much. That's mm-hmm. super interesting. I love that idea of control and inspiration, whereas you're writing Maybe the plot takes a turn because you're inspired by not only your own writing or what the machine spits out or maybe research. It's kind of just a new inspiration point for you to still merge and form that cohesive storyline. Yeah, although what's even weirder about it is that it creates beautiful things that are not yours, right? Like you'll have it write a description of something and it'll describe it and it'll not be what you thought at all, but you're like, well, that kind of works. And then what are you in contact with? Like when you're writing and like suddenly a good line occurs to you out of your brain, you're like, oh, this is great, but it's coming out of you. 
mm-hmm. right? You may not understand it. You may not know why it is coming out of you, but it's ultimately yours. When it's coming out of, you know, an interface, and particularly with the Cohere stuff, which is a much less human-trained model, you get a real sense of, I don't know how to describe I really don't know how to describe it. Like I've had like 30 chances to describe it. And um, it's very hard to know how to put it in words. It um, It's like being in contact with an alien or something. Or it's a kind of beauty that's not, how is it beautiful? Why is it beautiful? It's very unusual. It's a new aesthetic experience, right? Like I don't, I don't mm. think we ever have the words for it. Mm. When it comes to prompting for the mm-hmm. novel, you talked about, you know, giving a specific prompt on specific parts or metaphors. What about prompting for the overarching storyline? Did you do it by chapters? Did you start with one prompt overall and have the model spit out the entire thing and work from there? Oh, I had a very coherent plan of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um from the beginning. The thing is, we, we I've done other literary experiments that have been more lyrical and more, you know, avant-garde. Like the idea here was to write a, a thriller, right? Like to write a page turner that you would act, something you actually want to read because it's with these machines, it's very easy to generate stuff nobody wants to read. But, you know, that's true already. It's not like we're not drowning in stories that nobody wants to read. Like there's tons of those, mm-hmm. right? So like, how do we get at, sort of work that has real momentum and drive to it. And that meant using the machines for some things, but also understanding their limits, right? Like, for example, we we wanted to do an automated audio, like an automated reader, right? Mm-hmm. And we investigated it and we looked pretty closely into a lot of automated audio. And the truth is, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can listen to for a minute, but if you're gonna have someone listen to it for an hour, you're not going to use any, I would never listen to anything of an AI narrator for an hour. It's just not pleasant. You know, it has not gotten to the point where it's modulated enough and it's pleasant enough that you, that you, we would use it. Right. And similarly, like the plot mechanics for this stuff are weak. Like they'll just come up with the laziest story options that they can think of. Right. And now to be clear, that could absolutely be my own limitations. In fact, it almost certainly is. Like someone is going to figure out how to do that in a very interesting way. Just I could. So I didn't use it for any plot mechanics. It mm. would add things on its own and it would add little little things. But ultimately, the plot came from my brain. And I use this as a tool. Yeah, I think this idea of it as a tool is so important. You, you brought up this idea of the audio aspect. And I 100% agree with you with AI narrators like, I think the biggest corollary for me is for news articles. Like I'm a, I'm an audio person. I have a podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts. But so you go to these yep. news articles and they have those AI generated voices. And after a few minutes, you're like, this is terrible. And it's you're, you're kind of forcing yeah. yourself to finish. Like we looked, we, we had the money. Mm-hmm. Like we were like, we were like, we're going to find out like if we can buy it, we're going to buy it. And because the whole, this is the whole nature of this experiment. Right. And I think they're pretty far. Like, like, honestly, like it's one of these things, AI gets very close to good. And then that ultra refined edge um, that human beings do so well, it's a, it's a real uphill battle. I mean, not saying they're not going to get there. They might get there, but I certainly didn't experience one that I thought an audience could happily listen to this for an hour. Instead, we get Eduardo Bellarini, who, you know, the New Yorker called the voice of God, who's like as good as anyone could be. And I tell you what, I mean, he doesn't have to worry about losing his job. 
Eduardo Ballerini. Like, not at all. Yeah, it's this idea that excellence is still going to prevail, right? If you're going to listen to a book for like an hour, are you going to want to save 15 cents to listen to something that's like having something dragging behind you in your car? I mean, when I listen to like P.G. Woodhouse or whatever, it has to be Jonathan Cecil. It's like not, it's not only like it can't be a machine. It has to be one specific human being that I want. Like it can't be anyone else. And so that's, you know, people not in creative businesses. Like I saw somebody say like, well, the books will be the AI generated books will be 80% as good as human written books, but they'll be cheap. Right. And I was like, no one reads like people don't read the hundred percent books, right? Like if you want to write a book that people read, it's gotta be amazing. Yeah. Like no one is interested in an 80% good book. Like I, I just don't think there's any interest in that at all. Yeah. The bar has been raised for sure, especially with readership, like the amount of access you have to books between Amazon, between bookstores, between audiobooks, between Audible, between Spotify, the amount of access you have to storytelling yeah. in novel is insane. So this idea that subpar stuff's going to break through is just laughable. Yeah. I was going to ask about the pen name as well. When you were creating the book, when did you decide to go with Aiden Machine uh, versus your own name and how did that conversation happen well it was it was a sort of complicated process because on the one hand i was like it should just be a stephen marsh book because i'm just using a tool like i use spell check and i don't say like microsoft word wrote this essay right like i'm using a tool on the other hand i mean first of all i can't copyright this because it's 95 percent computer generated right like i don't actually own anything of it except the end of the final essay also it would be strange to call myself the author of the text when i didn't pick the words do you see what i mean like like the word author to me is someone who picks the words that are used it was kind of unusual situation and so we get like we gave it a pseudonym well we asked the machine to give it the pseudonym and it like come up with a come up with a pseudonym for this project and that's the name it came up with which seems pretty good to me it's almost like it's you lean in more editor sometimes and kind of story. There's not even really a title for it at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, I, I, as I said in the final essay, like it's like being a hip hop DJ. It, it involves curation to a to an highly extended degree. So like to build something meaningful with this tech, you need a really comprehensive understanding of English style. Right. Like, you need, like, the reason I could do this book is less that I've written novels before, more that I have, you know, a PhD where they made me read different periods in English literature from Old Norse to Middle English to 19th century novels to Shakespeare to, you know, avant garde stuff. So, like, I had a very broad understanding of English stylistics. And that was what gave me the ability to manipulate this technology because. The way you get interesting stuff here is by combining really strange things, right? So it's like, I write something about Toronto in the style of Chinese nature poetry, and then you put that in the style of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and then you start to get something interesting, right? Then you start to get something that you couldn't really make yourself or that is beautiful in some very specific, very strange way. Um, and that's that requires, like, it's a different set of skills. You also have to know exactly what to tell it. 
right? It's like the same thing with the, the visual prompts. In the early days of Dally 2 and everyone was like, oh, wow, look what everyone can do. Two months later, everyone figured out that the people who know how to use this stuff, the people who are the greatest prompt engineers have, you know, catalog of visual sources that someone like I would never have, right? They're designers who just know every artist and designer and architect, and they know all this visual language that they're able to put together in meaningful combinations and, and patterns. And the people who are good at AI, visual AI, are not surprisingly the people who are super smart at design. And it's exactly the same thing with linguistic AI. Like the difference between me and like the garbage that's being sent to science fiction magazines that's AI generated is that I know what good sentences look like and I know what good paragraphs look like and I know what how these traditions work and what the difference is between like Asimov sentences and Frank Herbert, right? Like that's the kind of knowledge that you're going to need to use AI creatively. It's just going to be really systematic understanding of references right and that's that's really similar to what hip-hop djs had right like when the hip when hip-hop was around in the 70s and 80s and the original djs like they didn't know how to how to play the drums or how to play the guitar but they knew every single record and could tell you how to separate the beats from it how to separate the hooks from it they were technically proficient and they had massive understandings of popular music right and i think ai is going to be similar it's going to require exactly that same kind of curation yeah you have to have that deep storytelling knowledge and 360 understanding so you can really dig in and really pull out the strong 100 percent a plus quality and grammar and syntax and style there is going to be a huge educational gap here, but like the most traditional possible linguistic education, if you're going to use linguistic AI properly, you're going to need to know grammar and, and syntactical structure. There's no way around it. And that's why I think it'll actually be quite limited because it's going to require a lot of knowledge. Like it's going to require a lot of knowledge around things that have largely been forgotten. You know, you brought up this idea of prompt engineering, and I've been seeing the job mm. postings come up. I think Donald Glover was hiring a prompt engineer for his new creative studio. Sure. Um, how did your prompting skills kind of improve in this process? And what exactly is this new role of prompt engineering? I don't know what people mean when they say prompt engineer. I mean, <laughs> I think what they, what they mean is people who know how to use this technology to get results, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's partly it. And they, they also mean people who know how to navigate between the technical space and the cultural space, right? And that's also incredibly rare and incredibly useful. There's only very few people who are actually good at that. And most of them come from the tech side and they are hugely valuable. Like the, you can't get them for creative projects. Like the people who actually know how to manipulate large language models to get to creative ends, very, very rare. My skills like developed because I learned how that you had to be as precise as possible. I mean, that's what everyone who does prompt engineering eventually figures out is that you've got to figure out how to do them. Now, the next stage that's really interesting and which is like the next stage for me creatively with artificial intelligence is how to connect prompts and how to create arcs that lead to meaningful narratives. Um, and that's incredibly difficult. You know, you need a machine learning engineer. You need people like that to help build it. Um, 
but it, and so it's very hard to find. And also, you know, like I'm just a journalist with a MacBook Air, right? To do this properly is going to require like major technical and creative fusions like we saw in Hollywood in the 1920s, right? And that's happened in a few little places, but there's not really a spot for it. Right. I mean, that's why the book has this fantasy of an AI imaginarium where it's like they're creative and the technical people are working together on these wild projects. Like that is my fantasy that someone builds that will probably build it at USC. I mean, I assume they will. Um, but like, like I'm just out here building it basically like derby soapbox racers. Right. Like trying to stitch together a bunch of pieces to get these things together. Um, if you were to get really into being able to orchestrate prompts not just write good prompts because like that's that's a skill that's going to be very general very quickly but the ability mm -hmm. to organize prompts into meaningful arcs that are capable of creating narrative structures for people i mean i think there's just a whole world of products and creativity that's going to come out of that on a lot of fronts i mean eventually that's going to be like you know the ai lawyer that you access is going to be built like that right and the ai doctor that it has some uses in, in marginal places. Uh, they're going to be built like that. And that requires just a very rare combination of technical understanding with creativity. And frankly, there's almost nobody who can do that. We spend so much time kind of unpacking the many challenges to using this technology to create stories. But this isn't the first time you've created a story using AI, you've been doing this since as early as 2017. So I also yeah. want to learn from you, how have you seen this technology improve just over these past several years when it comes to the creative? It's funny because the way AI works is that the engineers who build it don't really understand it. Like they don't, like it's not the kind of thing where they know what the results are going to be and they know what it will do, right? So similarly when you're using like the very first one i wrote for for wired like there was a computer science guy at u of t who built me my own system and i would use it and i would like write a paragraph and then put it in and it would either be a red light or a green light and then if it was a green light it meant that it fit the algorithmic pattern and i mean it was like it, you know it was very crude right and then uh, you know other ones that i did like i used gpt3 which I found very impressive. Like, I mean, the leap between GPT-2 and GPT-3 was just immense to me, right? And GPT-3, I could use to do things like, I wrote a 17% computer-generated story with that. Mm. Um, and that was for a, a horror story called The Thing on the Phone. And that was quite possible to do that. I mean, it was, it was tricky, but it was not that. Then with Cohere, I mean, I wrote one for LitHub where they actually allowed me to train bots um, you know, at great expense on individual authors. And then I would have each bot write a single sentence of a love story. And it created this, what I called an auto-tuned love story. So I was trying to find, I mean, what I'm trying to do is find ways to use the technology and adapt it to specific formats where it might be useful, right? Because I mean, I think, what can it do that no one else can do? It can write a generalized love story. You know, that's a very good use for it it can write a functioning thriller. Like these are experiments and this work is experimental by nature, but it's about understanding the tech enough to know what it can and can't do. And then using its strengths and weaknesses to get to a creative place where something beautiful can emerge.
right? And that requires technical understanding, but mostly just an understanding of like what can work in a narrative. Like, you know, if you think about like Rashomon by Kaobata, right? Like in a sense, this is a failed story because it doesn't make sense. The three stories don't add up. So one of them, everyone has to be lying or someone, nobody has to be like, but that's the beauty of it, right? Like the weakness of the story is its strength, right? And so understanding that as integral to the creative process, like that, that you go into the weakness and then finding the weakness in the tech and going into it, that's much more part of the creative process than, you know, just composing things. And that's why I find creative AI so fascinating. You're essentially inventing a new form every time you use it. You know, I think that's so important, this idea of using it as a tool, inventing and just understanding that you have to understand the technical limits. You have to know that, but you also have a deep understanding of the storytelling. You can't be any less of a writer oh, yeah. and use this tool and all of a sudden you're a writer. You know, I am interested about also something we were talking to uh, Dr. Avi Goldfarb about is this idea of the stories about AI. Because I think this is where a lot of the fear and the hysteria comes from is that when people hear AI, you know, most often they think of like Terminator. They think about the the, the, yeah. the fearful stories. How has that affected your work having to kind of re-educate people on what AI truly is, especially because it's so much math? <laughs> I basically have explained five or six times in The Atlantic and The Guardian and The New York Times that this is not a killer robot. And um, like, nobody cares, right? Like the, the, the movies in, in the movies in people's heads, just they, you can't stop them, right? Like they just think it's her and they think it's Skynet. And it's like, I don't know, like I've, I literally have given up. Like I wrote, the, I wrote the last one for The Guardian. I was like, look, I'm never writing about this again, but this is not, this is a computer algorithm that obeys instructions. Human beings do not obey instructions. Like that's not how it works, right? So like, it's not consciousness, it's not anything close to consciousness. I mean, part of the problem here is, I mean, I really do love working with engineers. Like, you know, they're so optimistic and they wanna build things and like, they're just positive. I mean, they're great. But on the other hand, like they don't have a super good grasp of basic humanistic ideas. And that's why you get geniuses, geniuses, I use that word without any hesitation, um, saying things are just incredibly ridiculous, right? And that doesn't help either. You know, the, the, the movies are just unbelievably powerful. But I think also, like, what I do is so specifically marginal. I am amazed how afraid people are of it. And obviously, and of course, it's the classic thing where everyone's afraid of the wrong thing. So the real fears, they just ignore. Like, the real things that are actually scary, and they ignore Right. And the things that we can do, you know, it's very almost impossible to do anything with AI. Like you can't, the regulation is either a zero or a one, like either do it or don't do it. Like all arguments about transparent stuff like that, very limited possibilities of doing that. But like, it's like, I've got an 11 year old girl who's about to have a phone, like, please regulate Instagram. It correlates to a lot of depression. Right. And we're not going to do anything about that. Instead, we're going to worry about, you know, is Skynet about to happen? It's sad. I, I mean, I really, I really think the discourse has gone completely off the rails. Yeah, I think the, the power of these movies and the stories, uh, it's, just, it's yeah. incredible. I do want to ask a kind of future-looking uh, turn here. How are you going to use ChatGPT in your future works? What have you learned from this experience? What are you excited about? 
Well, I don't know about ChatGPT. Like, I'm going to use several artificial intelligences. Like, Cohere is my favorite. Like, I, I okay. love the large language model at Cohere. And, you know, a lot of people only ever use ChatGPT. And if, you're on, mm-hmm. if you only ever use that form of artificial intelligence, you're getting a very limited view of what it is and what it can do um, and, and the possibilities that it opens up. I mean, I really believe that. I think that's half the reason why the discourse got so stupid. Is that like it's it's basically this one form of artificial intelligence that's been excluded all the others, right? And I mean, I have like a whack of creative projects that I'm going to do with it. I'm trying to recreate the Oracle at Delphi. Um, I saw that there's an AI generated astrology chart that's gotten very famous in New York. I'm upset because I was wor- I've been working on this Delphic recreation for quite a while. But I'm working on that and that should be possible. I mean, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and use it to fill in the blanks in some missing literary certain things like the Epic of Gilgamesh where there's like missing chunks and they can do that with paintings pretty well. I'm going to see if I can do it with some broken literary text. You know, like I'm also working on I think one of the things that's interesting about AI generation is that we see it as this explosive force. But where it really gets its power or where I think it's going to get its artistic power is in creating arcs and guiding it into frameworks that are mm-hmm. sensible and meaningful to us. Um, because its form of intelligence is not particularly meaningful to us a lot of the time. And to get it into a meaningful structure, um, there's going to be a lot of creative possibilities of that. But I mean, I'm super excited. I think this is the, we're at the birth of a new artistic medium. And, you know, every other artistic medium that we're in is exhausted. Like films are like, you know, if, if Hollywood could only make Spider-Man films now, that's all they would do. Like, the, like films have just become like so boring. Um, the novel, you know, I write novels, but the, we're at the end of novels. Like this, we're, but with AI, we're at the beginning of something, right? And that's just an unusual position to be in. And I, I kind of relish it. Yeah, definitely exciting to think about if we can renovate literature as we do ancient artwork or, or paintings and that's definitely a cool idea uh, yeah it would be it's an interesting question isn't it to close our our episode we have this quick segment called suspenders it's okay. a fun segment where we ask you a fun random question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever and you can give us any answer you feel like i love it let's do it all right question of the day is if you could live in any fictional universe, which one would you choose and why? Jeez. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fictional universe. Okay. Does that include like mythological universes? Like, could I live in like anything. ancient Greece? Anything. Yep, like, anything. I could live in the world of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Jeez. What would it be? <laughs> That's a good question. Okay, okay, hold on a minute. Let me think about this. Because it's not, you know, I guess some people would be like Narnia or whatever, right? Like, that would be like, that would be like the first thing. Like, I want to live in Narnia. I don't think that would be it for me. I think it would be, you know, this is a bit of a weird answer, but the world of Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare, where there's like beautiful summer night, everyone's sleeping around fairies are moving in with people you're in nature but it's like living nature yeah i'm gonna say it's it's a classy answer but actually it's uh it has always seemed to me a little bit of a paradise that world that he created there like that's that's a utopia for me a midsummer night's dream 
Yeah, I think it's a hard question because a lot of like my favorite literature, I don't want to yeah. live in that world. Like I don't want it. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you like, do you want to live in the world of J.R.R. Tolkien? I mean, you could be an orc. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's very dependent on what you are. I mean, there's so much danger yeah. there. I mean, a part of me wants to say, I don't know if you've seen the new movie Polite Society, but I've been pitching this movie to everyone. It's highly recommend seeing it. But in this universe, Polite everyone society. is like really good at martial arts. And it's just kind of how they deal with problems. And I'm like, that could be kind of right. cool. <laughs> Beating everyone up. <laughs> Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. This was super insightful. It was great to talk about this kind of intersection of AI and storytelling and learn more about it from you. So we really appreciate it. Pleasure to talk with you guys. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the cool, amazing, and epic learnings we got from this week's Expert Storyteller. And this week we had Stephen Marsh. He is the author of the new Pushkin audiobook, Death of an Author. And it was amazing to talk to him and learn more about how he used this new and exciting tool in his literary work. Kev, what did you think of Stephen? It's definitely such an educational conversation uh, mm -hmm. with all you know the craze around AI going on in the world get to talk to someone who actually employed uh, language AI or linguistic AI in their creative writing you know it's funny this is our second AI guest and our first one came out in November 2022 with Dr. Avi Goldfarb who is also in Toronto that was before ChatGPT blew up. That was before AI became the buzzword. But it's so interesting because it's such a different conversation and because it's now so in the zeitgeist and so understood at a different level, but also so much more misunderstood. And I think one thing that we talked about with Steven that was really interesting is this idea of AI as a tool and this idea of how competitive the storytelling landscape really is that even though there's this flashy idea of written with AI or like, interview with AI and there's this very flashy idea of it, in the end, that's just flash, right? Just because something's written with AI doesn't make it good, right? There's so many great stories that never get made because it's only 80% or 95% good. If you make something subpar, odds are it's never going to get made and odds are you're not going to find an audience. To tell something really timeless and amazing like the secessions of the world, you need quality. And, and it is still an incredibly nuanced and complex process to mm -hmm. generate text uh, with linguistic AI as uh, we got into detail with Steven. You know, he had to develop a very comprehensive plan to outline the story he wants to build out and spend a lot of time producing the prompt, refining the prompt so that he can get the paragraphs of plot devices that he wants out of the model. You need that balance of technical and storytelling. Exactly what you said. He was a storyteller who learned the technical things, right? You need that balance to use both skills because if you're too technical, like there's so many amazing engineers we know that would probably struggle writing a television show or writing a book because just because they know the tool, just because they know how it works doesn't mean they have those creative insights and vice versa. Just because you have such creative skill doesn't mean you understand the technical aspect of the tool. So it's important to have an understanding of both. 
And that's why you need both. You can't just have AI write the next great show because it, it misses that soul, that indescribable storytelling feeling. And at this point, AI has not been able to figure out that connection. And what also comes with understanding the difficulty uh, with using AI in creative work, you need to understand the limits you have to work with when telling your story. And that limit can come uh, in a lot of ways, right? In the case of AI, it can be the technicality of it. It can also be the limitations that come with um, the medium you're using for storytelling. Say, you know, with a podcast, you don't usually get visual elements. So how do you work around that? Or with a book, uh, it's very much text-based. Uh, how do you work around the limits of that? Understanding the budgetary limits, the time limits, the actor, actress limits, the limits of the story you're trying to tell, the limits of the power of the people you're trying to tell your story to, the limits of the format you're using, if it's a PowerPoint or a speech, what have you, and know your limits, play within them. I think another part about this is understanding limits comes all down to understanding your audience. This is something we talk about in almost every single Top Hat, Kevin. And with AI, something we talked about briefly and something we talked about a lot with Dr. Avi Goldfarb was that society, because of the movies we consume, because of the Terminator, because of her, because of all the stories we know for years before AI kind of came up as a viable tool, are in society's mind. It's scary, right? Um, so it's something that's really crucial for AI, understanding society, understanding the stories they have, and figuring out how to work with them. Instead of ignoring them or trying to disregard them or say, oh, that's silly, that's just a movie. If you work with it and try to re-educate people and try to understand where they're coming from, understand the stories they have that are real to them, because they don't work in AI, right? That's the only way you can get these tools across, only way you can get your stories across, only way you can get people excited about something is by working and meeting them where they are so that you can build with them instead of trying to fight against them. So with AI or any new technology, understand what society knows about it. Understand the stories they've consumed. Understand what the big movies on topic were. Understand them and find ways to work with them because that's the only way you're going to actually persuade someone and actually convince someone to give you your product or anything a chance because you know what they know and you know where they're coming from. Understand your audience. Yeah, if you're a machine learning scientist or a technical expert who would like to push this technology forward, then it's important that you make sure you don't perpetuate the public's fear of this technology in your communications. But this has been another great episode of the Linen Student Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to us. Leave us a comment or review to let us know what you're thinking. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at LSPTPod, LinkedIn, Linen Student Plastic Tie. We really appreciate your time and we're going to keep working hard to make it worth it. We hope we helped you become a better storyteller today. Have a great day and keep on killing it. The suspender question of this episode was generated by ChatGPT.